Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And welcome to The Cliff's Edge, episode three, as this Brexit saga develops in extraordinary ways. Virtually every hour, something weird happens. And so speedily do these strange eruptions take place that you find it difficult to pause and reflect on the oddity of the last one before something weird happens. I'm recording this shortly after the uh, appearance of Theresa May on the Today programme, in which she clearly decided to go on today to put forward her latest proposition to get herself out of this um, backstop nightmare. And she clearly came on to suggest to MPs, which is basically her audience for this, that instead of the backstop happening as a matter of course, Parliament could have a vote and decide whether to go into the backstop or continue with the transitional period for a longer period of time. Now, there are flaws in this proposition, but the bizarre thing about this interview was that even though that's clearly why she came on, because it was the only new element, the other argument she's put around the clock for months, uh, it's either my deal or no Brexit or uh, a no-deal Brexit. But she kind of started with an answer hinting at this proposition. John Humphreys didn't notice, and he pressed on with tedious questions about what her plan B is if she loses the vote. And that is one question she cannot answer in any way at all. Because if she starts articulating a plan B, that in a way negates the whole purpose of her campaign over the next few days, which is to persuade MPs to vote for her deal. If they know the alternative route that she is contemplating, that changes everything. So of course she can't start saying, oh yes, we've got this plan B that I'm looking at. I'm looking at Norway plus 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 or Canada plus plus plus, all these pluses of total vague evasiveness being bandied around. So she can't answer that question. But on he went, but Prime Minister, you're going to lose the vote. What is your alternative? And it was so boring. But she kind of, on one level, she's so polite that she felt that she had to address those questions, not by answering them, but by doing her usual tedious uh, response about the three options being available are the ones that are so familiar to us all. So it was so dull. And she hadn't noticed that John Humphreys hadn't noticed that she hadn't delivered the new proposition that she'd come on the programme to promote. And it was only towards the end when she said, I think I've covered this, when she hadn't. And then she began to articulate this proposition. But it was too late, really, for John Humphreys to probe about its um, feasibility. So, you know, another weird 20 minutes. The BBC can do one thing. It's that John Burt thing about a mission to explain. Uh, Voters, probably more than being ideologically committed, most of them anyway, are probably just bewildered by what's going on. And that mission to explain is what the BBC could do, but it it feels that actually what it can do is kind of achieve a form of balance by putting on some hardline Brexiteer versus a Remainer and think that's it. And so you just hear the same arguments again and again. But actually, 
that is a bias against understanding, to quote John Burt again. Shame he's not Director General at the moment. He wasn't very popular when he was Director General at the BBC, but he gave it a purpose and a leadership that is so missing at the moment. Um, the BBC, contrary to passionate views on either side, is not biased in favour of Brexit or biased in favour of Remain. It's certainly not on the left, I can tell you that, knowing a lot of people who work there, but nor is it biased on the right. There is, though, still, to quote that John Burr phrase, a bias against understanding, a neurotic fear of letting items breathe, letting panellists have more than 30 seconds to articulate what is already a familiar point of view. And that's a big problem. And that interview was another example. Here was a Prime Minister at peak time radio putting forward a proposition to try and get her out of the nightmare she is in. And the interviewer didn't even notice at first. By the way, the proposition is problematic for many reasons. It may challenge the very premise of the deal that she has signed, because part of that deal was not an extension of the transition period. And it's not quite clear whether Parliament would have the automatic right. Perhaps it will, because it's a hung Parliament and could therefore determine what happens rather than the government. But it's quite hard to see how you legislate for that. It could be a different government in power in two years' time. So whether this moves the uh, dial very far is highly questionable, but it is an interesting moment. The first hint of a recognition that she is in trouble and needs to come up with something in public and the interviewer didn't notice but then weird things are going on every day you kind of just you know in the last few days we had may signing this historic deal in brussels you know all trumpets blazing and um, then she returned to the Commons the next day, gave a statement, and for an hour of brutal parliamentary theatre, there was not a single MP who backed that historic deal. An extraordinary moment, but before we have time to pause and reflect on that dynamic, we have another weird sequence where the government puts forward its economic analysis of each of the various Brexit options, and agree that each of them will make the UK worse off. And you have the Chancellor giving a series of interviews where he says that Theresa May's deal is by far the best, but it will make us worse off. It must be the first time in British politics that the government's official economic policy is to make the UK worse off. Now, we know why they are in that position, but it is, on one level, absurd. Uh, Monty Python used to do stuff about the silly party, and it is silly, on one level, that the official economic policy is to make Britain worse off. But before there is time to reflect for very long on that, on it goes to the next weird twist, one of them being... Theresa May's sort of UK-wide tour. You know, she was in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, as if this was a referendum or a general election. And yet she is emphatically opposed, I think, to both. And so what is she doing? Well, I kind of know the thinking is to try and generate popular support so MPs feel compelled in the end to vote for her deal. But this is about 
Parliament and in a way the um, whole focus is on Parliament in a good way. It's terrific that those who we are elect are exerting a degree of power. That's how it should be. It doesn't work when governments have landslide majorities, so Parliament was largely irrelevant during the New Labour era and to some extent during the Thatcher era. Prime Ministers and their governments could do more or less what they wanted, and so there was less interest in Parliament. Parliament comes into its own when governments have small or no majorities, and they are in control because of the numbers. John Major went through hell in Parliament in the mid-1990s, again over Europe, because he couldn't be sure of winning majorities. He had a tiny majority which fell and fell over the five years after the 92 election. And so it is now with this minority government. I um, tweeted the other day that actually it was during that brutal parliamentary event where she came back with her historic deal for it to be torn apart that May's big fault was that after that election that she called in which she lost her party's overall majority she should have sat down and posed this question what now is the Brexit that gets through this parliament? But it was an unfair tweet because if she had posed the question and tried to answer it, her party would have removed her. And so, in a way, prime ministers often in politics can't ask the obvious questions, let alone answer them. And so she's plodded on with her version of Brexit, which she hoped when it came to a formal deal would bring round most of her MPs and quite a lot of Labour. And that hasn't happened. But she could never have been in a position as a prime minister who lost her party's small but significant overall majority to kind of work with Labour to get some kind of Brexit that would pass the House of Commons. Rees-Mogg would have politely knifed her. Even if he can't command 48 signatures now, he would have been able to in that situation after the election. And so She was, in some respects, trapped, although when she did have space, as I've reflected before, when she first became Prime Minister, she didn't use it to learn hard lessons about Brexit herself and to tell her party what those hard lessons were, one of many big mistakes she made. The other weird thing that happened, of course, as I say, it all moved so speedily on, was the whole row over the legal advice from the Attorney General. And this Attorney General, uh, Geoffrey Cox, gave a theatrical performance in the House of Commons, again for several hours, defending the decision not to publish the advice, while saying again and again in that sort of plummy barrister's performance, I will answer every question the House puts, of course I will. I can't do his voice. But it was again another bizarre sequence, because wholly predictably, When the legal advice was published, there were no great revelations. Uh, People, uh, Westminster correspondents, rushing around saying, oh, this is sensational. And the reason it wasn't sensational is obvious that the Attorney General, this theatrical figure, had no information that wasn't publicly available. He had read the deal, 
which is available for all of us to read if you've got a spare couple of months to read the 500 pages of dense prose. So all we were getting was an interpretation from a lawyer. We had had several other interpretations from other lawyers, and his wasn't particularly surprising. But, of course, secrecy is what gets people so excited, the assumption that something must be hidden. Why the government didn't publish it when Parliament asked it is a more interesting question. Theresa May works and prefers to work in the semi-darkness of number 10 with a few advisers. That's how she began this Brexit sequence when she first became Prime Minister and made a series of mistakes by not exposing her assumptions to the wider world earlier. So I assume she opted for the secrecy and darkness of not publishing this legal advice because that is the culture in which she likes to work. Presumably she worried in the current feverish climate that seeing words about the backstop from the Attorney General would heighten the excitement. And to some extent she was right about that. Up popped the DUP saying this is even worse than we thought. Well, what they already thought it was terrible and it didn't change anything really and I don't think will be a big factor in the days to come but again it was another sort of crazy sequence the attorney general hours in the house of commons day later he's forced to publish the advice that he had spent hours defending not publishing there will be many more twists to come the amendment that Dominic Grieve won ensures that there will be options for Parliament if and when her vote is defeated. That was another odd thing. Number 10 was spinning after the Grieve Amendment was carried that this was quite good news for the Prime Minister because it meant no deal was off the table and that the dissenters who want Brexit would have to back Theresa May. And up popped various correspondents to say this was or could be good news for Theresa May. I think it completely misunderstands the changed nature of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. This is a parliamentary party, or parts of it, that uh, ERG group and some others, who act out of conviction and are not willing to compromise those convictions. They've been like that for some time. The Conservative Parliamentary Party used to be pragmatic largely and won elections by twisting and turning and being advocates of that one nation Toryism that went long ago uh, it, it was going in the uh, 1990s under major and they feel a loyalty to their local parties much more than to the national leadership a very very big shift and they have this passion about Europe that's not going to be bought off very easily, if at all. And so they, I think, will not sit there and think, well, no deal's off the table, I will vote for this. They're not going to vote for it, or not enough of them to get it through. And there is also now talk of such a big defeat that if the defeat is under 80, it will be portrayed perhaps as a great triumph for Theresa May. It really isn't. It is a moment of great historic significance when a Prime Minister 
presents a proposition to the House of Commons, arguably one of the most significant since 1945, and says, as she has done uncharacteristically intensely, that she believes this deal with her head and her heart is the best for the UK. For it to be rejected at all is extraordinary. And um, although, of course, the scale of the majority will partly determine what happens next, a defeat of any size is seismic. And I think it is difficult to see how she goes away and comes back and puts essentially the same proposition to the House of Commons again, unless the majority that she loses by is really tiny. There are logistical reasons why she can't bring back a profound revised proposition. This deal is done as far as the EU is concerned. They're all, I mean, there's a summit after the vote, but then they all go off for Christmas and New Year. So there isn't really time to get agreement with all those leaders for any kind of significant change in this dance over the backstop, which is, as she has said, necessary to protect the soft border in Ireland. In a way, her commitment to it is both admirable and yet unavoidable. If you want that soft border, there has to be an arrangement and a guarantee to keep it in place. But she has trapped herself by saying that in the end, the UK is out of a customs union. And her obsessive focus on immigration as a theme has also become part of her self-imposed incarceration. And I think misreading of the options available at the very beginning to her of this uh, dark nightmare that she has been going through and will continue to go through. One of the hilarious things at the moment is all the articles and reports on what will happen next if and when she loses the vote on Tuesday because they're all prefaced with uh, nobody really has a clue. And that is the reality. It will depend partly, as I say, but only partly on the scale of the defeat. But then all options come into play. But I think the significant factor is at last the recognition that this is a minority government. And when there are minority governments, Parliament at key moments take control. It's very interesting, you know, if you look back to the Labour governments of the 1970s, they were basically minority governments all the time. They won a tiny majority in the second election in 1974, in October 74, but it was tiny and it was soon gone. It was Parliament, in the end, that made life hell for that government. Of course, trade unions played their part in the sort of winter of discontent and all the other issues around that 70s government. But it was Parliament that destroyed the Labour government. They lost a vote of confidence in uh, 1979, triggering the election. By the way, you know, when people talk about the drama on December the 11th, the drama of that vote of no confidence was sensational. They lost by one vote, that Labour government. And of course, it became part of that wonderful play, This House, written by James Graham, because the parliamentary theatre then was comparable to what's going on now. Labour governments then quite often couldn't get their proposals through. 
some of the public spending cuts that were central to the economic policy of Wilson and Healy and then Callaghan and Healy were defeated in the House of Commons. So what we're going through now is what happens when governments don't have an overall majority. We're just so used to landslide parliaments and even with that coalition they had a majority with the two parties combined. This is what happens. Governments lose votes and in effect lose control and Parliament takes much greater control. The reason why Parliament can't take full control is that the instrument of any legislation must be the government. So this is the mystery really which we don't know and there's no point really speculating is what the agent of change is, assuming May's deal falls and is doomed. Because then the options are the Norway plus, don't ask me about the plus, or the very vague Labour proposition, which is not that different from Norway, although is enough to make them say they oppose Norway. What is the instrument that brings all that together? Because perhaps there is a majority that could coalesce around some version of that. If there is a move towards a referendum, what is the prime ministerial figure who that brings the legislation forward? You can see how Parliament could move towards either of those options, although I would prefer it, as I said before and wrote in a column for The Guardian recently, that they the simplest, cleanest way out of this is for Parliament to revoke Article 50 and then put the case for representative democracy making decisions uh, in the interests of the country. That would be the simplest. Of course, all hell would break loose. There would be a constitutional crisis. There would be huge fuming anger. But I think there will be with every option because Brexiteers are not brilliant at governing, as we have seen, but they are great at being disillusioned. And they will be fuming, I think, whatever the permutation that surfaces, uh, the hard line ones anyway, in the coming months. But the key question is who the Prime Minister is that instigates any of these other options. You can see some of them getting through Parliament, and in that sense, Parliament will take control. But Parliament can't instigate the legislation, the government must. There's no point in us speculating about any of that until we know what happens at seven o'clock on December the 11th. So over the next few days, have a kind of pause from the drama, have a few relaxing drinks, because it's really going to take off after the vote on December the 11th. Thank you for listening. Rock and Roll Politics is at King's Place on, I think it's Monday, December the 17th. There aren't any tickets available at the moment, but there's another one on sale on March the 13th, the month that we're supposed to be leaving the European Union. Do uh, a book for those. They're on sale now, and I think will sell out quite quickly. This one sold out in October, the December one. And there are some few others doing around the country in that period in March when... Well, who knows where we'll be then. We'll have probably had about three prime ministers by then. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Do subscribe and tell others to subscribe. And I might pop up before the vote, but I certainly will afterwards. Thank you. Enjoy the next few days, if you can. See you next time.